0: Neurodiversity is an umbrella term. It's not something you're going to find in the DSM-5, where we typically would diagnose mental health conditions and things like that. It's really a term that has evolved to encompass all of the variations and differences in the way that the human brain works. So having a brain that operates or functions differently from the norm or the typical brain, or you might say diverges from the typical brain, is what places you underneath the neurodiversity umbrella. So most commonly, people will think of autism spectrum condition, ADHD, those are the two big ones, but even things like bipolar disorder, anxiety, Tourette's syndrome, a lot of those things also fall under that umbrella because the brain functions differently, and that changes the person's experience of the world.
1: Today, I'm talking nerdy about neurodiversity with Alex Martinowitz. In today's conversation, Alex breaks down for us what neurodiversity is, the rise in neurodivergent diagnoses like ADHD and ASD, the difference between neurodivergent awareness and supportive action, and how neurotypical individuals can foster a greater environment of inclusivity and celebration. Alex is a board-certified behavior analyst and yoga teacher, working with neurodivergent teens at a middle school through acceptance and commitment training, yoga, mindfulness, and breathwork. Her neurodivergent affirming practices aim to empower her students and give them tools to show up authentically, reduce anxiety, and live in a way that is in alignment with their own values. Alex is also a graduate of my neuroscience-based breathwork and meditation teacher training, which we reference in this episode. Before you dive in, I would love if you could hit pause and leave us a five-star review and a written review on whatever platform you're listening on. In doing so, you help get this podcast into the ears and brains of more listeners like you. Now let's dive in and start talking nerdy. Welcome, Alex Martinowitz, to Talk Nerdy to Me. One of the reasons why I'm so excited to have you on this podcast is because I'm first and foremost really thrilled to be talking to people who are experts in areas that I'm not and to constantly be learning something new. And when I was in school at UCLA, neurodiversity is actually not something that I had the opportunity to study extensively. And over the past few years, especially with social media, conversations around neurodiversity autism spectrum disorder ADHD all of these things are becoming more and more common and I feel like I know very little about them and a lot of the people that I've talked to are experiencing the same thing where we're seeing all this information on social media but we don't actually have a greater in-depth understanding of what these things are and what's happening so I'm super excited to dive in and start talking nerdy with you
0: thank you so much for joining me Oh my gosh. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited. I feel like I could talk neurodiversity all day. So we'll try and keep it to our time. But yeah, this is a topic that I love to it out on. Amazing.
1: So I guess my first question for you is what is neurodiversity? Can you
0: break it down for us a little bit? Yeah. So neurodiversity is like an umbrella term. It's not something you're going to find in the DSM-5, where we typically would diagnose mental health conditions and things like that. It's really a term that has evolved to encompass all of the variations and differences in the way that the human brain works. So having a brain that operates or functions differently from the norm or the typical brain, or you might say, diverges from the typical brain is what places you underneath the neurodiversity umbrella. So most commonly people will think of autism spectrum condition, ADHD, those are the two big ones, but even things like bipolar disorder, anxiety, Tourette syndrome, a lot of those things also fall under that umbrella because the brain functions differently and that changes the person's experience of the world. The neurodiversity movement is really just the idea that folks who are neurodivergent also are deserving of the same civil rights, equality, inclusion, and respect as everybody else. And it's really just another component of the variation in humans. We have racial diversity, we've got diversity in physical abilities. So it's just another component of how humans are different. Amazing,
1: thank you so much for sharing that. Something that you mentioned was autism spectrum condition, and I wanted to ask, for personal reasons, is there a reason why you're saying autism spectrum condition instead of ASD? Are they effectively the same thing, or are there some differences that I should know about and listeners should know about too?
0: It's truthfully the same. I'll probably use both interchangeably. Autism spectrum disorder, I would say, is the most common, but a lot of times when I'm looking into neurodiversity information from overseas, so the United Kingdom, Australia, a lot of times I'll see the word condition pop up instead of disorder. I use both. I don't think there's anything conclusive around it yet. Do you feel like that
1: difference in word condition versus disorder enables people to feel more normal in their diversity? Just... Personally, I'm curious if you feel like there's a difference.
0: I think that it could. That's probably really individualized. I think especially now there's a huge reclamation of just even the word disabled. Right. So ADHD and autism both fall under a covered disability. So if you're in the United States, right, you have certain legal protections for that. But I think if you go back even 10 years probably... Disabled was a word that a lot of people didn't use. I think we all kind of said differently abled for a little while. And then at some point that shift kind of took place where people took back the word and said, you know, that's actually not a bad word. There's nothing wrong with that. So I think when we're talking about condition versus disorder, that might just be up to the individual. What do they really think is the word that applies for them? But if you're going by the diagnostic manual, it's disorder. Okay. Okay. Awesome.
1: Thank you so much for sharing that. I'm curious where your own journey exploring this began and what led you to the line of work that you're currently in.
0: So my work started when I was finishing my undergraduate degree. I was volunteering at a domestic violence shelter. So I was a domestic violence counselor in their children's program. And for me, that's just part of having a life of service. I always wanted to find some type of work that was going to be meaningful in that way. But that particular line of work was really heavy. So I would come home and I would have this energy that I needed to move out of my body. And I went and thought, well, there must be something else that allows me to work with kids and hopefully doesn't leave me with this happiness. So I changed into working in behavioral support. And that was mostly with autistic kids and their families, and I had all different ranges of abilities and support needs. And that was where I really fell in love with the science of human behavior. The idea that you can learn a new skill, particularly with repetition and having that skill reinforced over time was something that blew my mind. And I became obsessed with it. I could nerd out all day on applied behavior analysis. Eventually, I, you know, loved it so much that I went back to grad school. So I got my master's in education and applied behavior analysis and really expanded the clients that I was working with. The thing that came up most was that all of my students, whether they were four years old, whether they were 15 years old, 20 years old, were presenting with a lot of anxiety. And something that I've come to realize in working with this population is that just the fact of being autistic or any other, you know, neurodivergent quality comes with some type of trauma. So that might not necessarily mean capital T trauma. It could be that lowercase T. But being in a world where you are constantly misunderstood, misinterpreted, or even rejected because of your neurological differences, whether you know about them or not, is Traumatizing and it leads to anxiety. And there's a lot, I think, that we still need to do with moving from, you know, neurological, neurodiversity awareness and shifting that more into acceptance and then past that celebration. But it all came back to that lowercase T trauma most of the time and the anxiety. And how could I find a way to support that? Being a person who also has anxiety (laughs) and all of the ways in which I've tried to take care of myself, I mean, breathwork, meditation, yoga, there was a time when I thought, I think these two worlds need to come together. There has to be a holistic approach that takes the science of human behavior and these practices that are now rooted in neuroscience and bring it to people so that they can live more joyful, authentic lives. And that's what I do now. I work with students supporting their social, emotional wellness, their mental health, and also finding a way to give them access to things like yoga and breath work. And it's been the biggest joy of my life. I love that. I want to back it up just a little bit because there are a
1: few things that you mentioned that I want to revisit. And the first is that you're helping a lot of your students learn new behaviors and skills. And I'm curious if you can elaborate a little bit more on what some of those are beyond just helping them mitigate their
0: anxiety. What are some of the skills that you're helping them learn? Oh yeah, I love that. I think the biggest skill is teaching them to question the world and the way that the default settings of the world are so that they can build an environment that's more supportive for them. What that can practically look like, and this is something I recently saw, is, you know, when you open your fridge and the side door, typically it has a couple of shelves where you put all your condiment bottles and then the lower shelves on the actual interior of the fridge is where you would put things like produce and things that will probably go bad. So for a lot of folks who have ADHD, there is a struggle with object permanence. (laughs) If it's out of sight, it's out of mind. And a struggle with managing their resources effectively. So what will happen is the produce in the bottom of the fridge will go bad. The condiments on the right side of the fridge will be way overstocked. They might end up with like three bottles of poison sauce when they don't need that many. And the reality is there's no rhyme or reason why you have to keep that that way as your default. You can put the things that you don't need to see and restock all that often in those shelves that are hidden, and you can put things that you do need to see and actually prepare for yourselves within a certain time window on that right-hand door of the fridge where you're going to see it really easily. It seems really silly. It's like, that's such a small thing, but for a person to be able to just question why do we do things a certain way and can I do it differently is huge. I mean, what
1: you're explaining to me is a heightened level of self-awareness and an ability to question the external world and the way that we have it set up and reorganize it in such a way that it's conducive and supportive to us rather than trying to conform ourselves to the way that things have always been and the way that we believe that they're going to be. I'm curious if there are any other examples that you can give just because I'm mind-blown right now with the fridge example.
0: (laughs) right it's sort of like oh i never would have thought to like change that setup yeah because we're trained to sort of just accept the default and the norm of how we're told something goes that's what we grew up with i mean i think another thing that i've shared with some of my students is that just because they're in a setting where it seems like you are expected to participate in a certain way doesn't actually mean that you always have to A lot of my students, because of the school that I work at and the program that I'm in, they tend to have a small group council where it's meant to be a space where students can share very vulnerably and be emotional with each other and really process through some of the challenges of being a teenager, which is just hard already. And for some of my students that are autistic, that's really hard to sit through If they're not interested, if they're not feeling that space of, oh, I really want to hear what other people have to say and do I want to share authentically, it can be challenging. But because they feel the expectation that, oh, I am supposed to share, that's the norm that's going on in here, they then find this internal struggle that leads to the anxiety. What do I say? How do I say it? When should I join? I really didn't want to say anything anyways. And the reality is you could just say, I don't have anything to share right now. You can just challenge the norm. I feel
1: like that's a valuable life skill for anybody to have. You know, so much of what you're sharing, I don't think is just applicable to neurodivergent individuals, but something that we can all foster in ourselves. The ability to question the status quo and the way that things are, the ability to advocate for ourselves and our own needs at any given moment in time. All these things feel like essential life skills to me. And so I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that, because it feels like what you're doing is teaching people how to advocate for themselves. And I'm curious how much of that you are able to bring into your interactions with more neurotypical individuals, I guess,
0: because I feel like we need it too. <laughs> yes. I mean, I think a lot of it is teaching them to advocate for themselves, teaching them to question the default. And I think the other biggest piece is trying to remove the shame. So the shame that comes with a life lived being misunderstood, the shame that comes with a life lived feeling really challenged by the default expectations that are a big struggle for you to meet. And what that can look like a lot of times for my students in particular is trying to teach them not to over explain themselves when they're asking for support. I think A lot of neurodivergent folks do this, but neurotypical people as well. So for example, if I had a student and let's say that they need an extension on some type of assignment, their default impulse a lot of times is going to rationalize and say, I'm so sorry, I'm asking for an extension because I accidentally misjudged my time and then I stayed up too late and then I couldn't focus and then on and on and on trying to explain away the reasons why hopefully the other person will be understanding and compassionate and not judge them for needing the extra time. They're almost trying to rationalize, why Why do I deserve this extra time? And teaching students to move away from that and just ask for the support, I think has been huge for their anxiety. And just also teaching The people who are on the receiving end, that they don't need to receive a huge explanation either. You know, I think part of it can be just as simple as, "Dear teacher, I was hoping to have an extension on this assignment. I need a little bit more time." That's the end. Do you need to tell your teacher that you had an anxiety attack and stayed up till one thirty in the morning until your parent forced you to go to bed because you couldn't manage the executive function skills to pull out your Chromebook? And research your paper? I don't think so. We're humans. I think it's okay to just ask for what you need. And part of that also comes with teaching the neurotypical teacher to accept that. That was going to be my next question
1: is, you know, you're working with neurodivergent individuals, but it also feels like there's such a big need for training and education. As you mentioned, beyond just awareness, but actual Practices of acceptance and celebration and systemic change in the ways that more neurotypical individuals interact with neurodivergent individuals. I'm curious if you can speak to that a little bit. What are some of the changes that you feel need to start happening?
0: I think some of the changes that need to start happening is, and I think this kind of goes actually for everyone, um, but looking for the best intention in people is always a great choice. And what I mean specifically is that for folks that are neurodivergent, sometimes they communicate very honestly and without any subtext, sometimes lacking nuance. And that's very counter to how neurotypical people generally communicate. So there once was an instance in this past year where I had an eighth grade student who at eight in the morning was going to... A seminar that the school was hosting to welcome the eighth grade students and prepare them for what ninth grade would look like. So sort of like a, oh, we're welcoming you into high school. The speaker that greeted everyone said, are we excited to be here today? (laughs) Which general question fair, but my student said no. And I'm laughing because I thought it was so funny, (laughs) but. That to me is something where I see that as just honest communication, authentic answer. Someone asked a question, they gave it. There were teachers in the audience who then approached me and my co-teacher. I have a phenomenal set of co-workers and said, hey, I think that this is an issue. It was really rude, the student said, and I don't think that reflects well for them going into high school and they were, they, they were clearly a little offended by it. And so I challenged that and I said, I honestly think that he was just being honest. You know, it's eight in the morning. He honestly probably didn't want to sit in an auditorium with a bunch of other kids talking about high school. I think he probably would have rather have been in his routine and gone to his classes. I don't think he intended to be rude. And the teacher said, I really think he was being a smart aleck. OK, we'll follow up checked in with the student. And he kind of looked a little incredulous. He was like, well, it's eight in the morning. Why do I want to be here? I was like, "Mm, I feel you. And, you know, the conversation that, you know, that I had and my co-teacher had with him was around the importance and the value in being authentic. And so not wanting to change that. I don't ever want to encourage someone to, to lie or to feel like they need to not be themselves. And also recognizing that sometimes there's an opportunity to leave a first impression. And so you have a choice. Is this a moment where I need to be outspokenly authentic? Or is this a moment where perhaps I should say my words and just not answer? There's not a right or wrong. There's not a better or worse. It's just what's important to you. It's something that I know a few of the listeners right now
1: know about me is that I took a vow of honesty almost seven years ago now. And basically what that entailed is never telling a lie ever again. It's not that I was a compulsive liar before. This was definitely a, a devout spiritual practice. So never telling a lie ever again looking back at any old lies that I was still upholding and coming clean on them and learning how to communicate in a way that was honest without being mean or harsh or offensive and navigating the nuances of that. It's such a an important and valuable skill to have as well. And from the other end of the pendulum, I think that There is definitely a lot of work neurotypical individuals can do as well to become increasingly honest and not hold back so much because something that I've seen a lot of my clients struggle with anxiety, for example, especially social anxiety, is that there's so much manipulation of their words and what they're saying and fear of not saying the right thing, fear of not doing the right thing, fear of being accepted that they never actually let anyone in enough to know who they really are in order to be fully accepted for their authentic selves. And I feel like this honesty is something that is so important for everybody, but it's so interesting to hear you kind of working at it from the other end, because I feel like our lines of work are similar and yet so different and coming from different approaches in some ways. It's just fascinating. The other thing that I wanted to reflect back on in what you just shared is that there's right there's like the diagnosis or there's the condition but then there's also the shame and the societal pressure and the societal judgment around the condition and then there's all of this anxiety around am i conforming to what i'm supposed to be doing am i doing what i should be doing and from the neuroscientific perspective like we never just have one Even one thought in isolation will then subsequently have judgments around the thoughts, and then emotions about those judgments, and then judgments about those emotions, and then on and on and on. And it becomes this almost like this snowball effect that keeps us stuck in cycles of anxiety and self criticism and self animosity. And it sounds like so much of the work that you're doing is helping people untangle themselves from that web of really intense emotional experience around what we can all just learn to accept and celebrate as a difference rather than something that's divisive and separates us and pulls us further and further apart. You know, my intention in this podcast episode is not to be like, oh my God, we're it's the same. It's the same because I know that there are differences and like the importance and value of your work is helping people understand how to navigate the nuances of those differences. And I think something that's been so illuminating for me in this conversation is like, oh, we really are more similar than different. And when we can honor and reflect those differences, there's more opportunity for actual connection and celebration and significantly less anxiety and pain than when we see ourselves as being so separate. Another tangent there, but let's continue onward. So you mentioned that the anxiety is something really big that you're supporting your students with, and I'm
0: curious how exactly you're doing that. So yeah, there's a few different ways that I support students with anxiety. One of them is I actually teach a couple classes for yoga and mindfulness and breath. That's just one of the very direct ways that students are going to get some support for their anxiety. It can be tricky because oftentimes I have to find a way to really get buy-in on why do they need to do yoga? Why should we do this breathwork activity? And then finding a way to make it really engaging. I've actually found, if there's anyone out there who's particularly interested, My Chemical Romance, which is popular with the gothy teens has an ambient version of their music on Spotify. (laughs) And it's great for yoga. Same with BTS, Metallica, really anything that you like. It was just a simple way that I was able to get students to really sort of settle in and say, okay, I'll take your yoga class, Alex. That's fine. (laughs) But the other things that I do are really just based on the individual. So my students will come see me at any point in their school day. And a lot of times it's talking through what is challenging for you right now. What is making you anxious? Can we feel that somewhere in your body? So can we do a a conscious scan and see if there's tension that you're holding somewhere? Is there pain in your stomach? Is there anything like that? And then we typically will walk through what if it's a social issue, a social anxiety? Is there a way to build in some flexibility? into their mindset, because a lot of autistic folks in particular can have really rigid mindsets on things. Sometimes it might be allowing the student to see the other person's perspective. So if it's, again, if it's a social thing that's making them really anxious, can we try and look at other perspectives? And then after that, really it might be just finding what is going to support this individual. For some of my students, a walk is honestly really helpful. So we'll, Walk and at the same time talk about what's going on. They need the movement piece to allow everything else to sort of process through. Other times it can be something more intense. Maybe we need to go and play basketball really intensely. I'm going to be horrible at it, but we're going to have fun and hopefully process some of that, you know, the emotion that you're holding in your body. And then other times it might just be they need to decompress. So let's find you a space. Let's set a timer so that you can get what you need if those other things are not really supportive to you. And then lastly, if it's, you know, a huge emotion that's coming through and interfering with their ability to get through their day and the other strategies are not really effective, it could just be, I want you to feel your feelings to the fullest for five minutes. And I'm going to set a timer. When that timer goes off, you're going to be all done. You're going to move on. We're going to go back to class and, you know, reset. And it seems sort of odd to set a timer and have someone sort of just feel the full teenage despair and cry sometimes. And then as that timer goes off, okay, I'm done now and go on. But it works. And I think that you've shared before that you really only need 90 seconds. To really fully process an emotion, I give the kids a little bit longer because they'll probably yell at me if I say you have 90 seconds. But it's honestly been transformative for allowing them to not shut down emotions and still get what they need and then move on. Absolutely. There's so much research showing that
1: emotional suppression increases sympathetic nervous system activity, which is your body's fight or flight stress response. So when we don't carve out time to feel our feelings, this is the truth for anybody, when we don't carve out time to feel our feelings, it increases our level of stress and anxiety. And in terms of the 90 seconds, it only takes 90 seconds for the physiological ripple effect, chain effect of an emotion to move through our system to be processed through our bloodstream and then filtered out through our kidneys to be released but anytime after that after that 90 seconds if we're continuing to experience an emotion it's either because the trigger for that emotion is still prevalent in our physical environment or we're thinking about it still like we're re-exposing ourselves to it mentally and cognitively so it's not that it only takes 90 seconds this is an important key note for listeners. Like your emotions usually don't just last 90 seconds. It usually takes a little bit longer for us to process and feel them. They physiologically only last 90 seconds from an exposure for the chemicals to be moving through our body and then released out. I still set a aside sometimes for myself, especially with anger. When I feel anger, I don't have a problem feeling it. When it comes, I acknowledge it. I address it. And then it usually leaves really quickly. I don't tend to stew in it. But lately, I've been noticing there's so much anger for me. And so I have been setting a timer for myself and like karate chopping my pillow and punching my mattress and... Some people that are listening right now know this about me, but earlier this year I was in Thailand and I started actually taking Muay Thai classes and learning how to actually box because I was like, there's just some stuff that needs to be moving through. So I think that it's so important to be able to have that boundary around feeling and then also be able to move forward and move on. So that's amazing. Thank you for sharing in terms of adhd specifically i want to pick your brain on that because that's something that i get questions about in my dms in my email inbox all the time because similarly to asd there's such a wave of social media awareness that's coming forward and people have been asking me a lot about do i have adhd i'm noticing that i have these symptoms I'm noticing that I resonate with a lot of what people are saying in their TikTok videos or in their Instagram reels. And I'm always like, "I this is not my area of expertise, but I can bring someone onto the podcast who can speak to this a little bit more and give you some recommendations for the best direction to look in. So I'm curious if you can maybe share a little bit more about why ADHD diagnoses are becoming increasingly
0: common these days. Oh, yeah, I think it's not a super exciting answer, but honestly, there's a huge increase because people have greater access to care along with clinicians having better tools for actually diagnosing. There is currently a pretty substantial wave of folks who are in their you know 30s and 40s that are now getting diagnosed with ADHD and a huge part of that is because ADHD for a very long time was misinterpreted as really only presenting as hyperactive. So what commonly would happen is in a school setting you would have young kids and because of the way that society tends to socialize girls and boys differently a very hyperactive boy would be sort of flagged by their teacher. They would be noticed as being really hyper and fidgety and maybe distracting in the classroom. And that either would be not noticed in a girl or it would be societally punished, so not punished in the way of like detentions or anything like that. But just girls are raised with a different set of expectations. And they tend to be hyperactive in their mind. So it's not going to present necessarily very physically, but girls may have more of an inattentive presentation. So their mind is really actively jumping from thought to thought and not really on task, but they can kind of get by. So then from that point on, you know, a pediatrician, a psychologist, psychiatrist, um, the school system would then. Support the family in coming to some type of assessment and then diagnosis, and then on they would go. But now, you know, for folks who didn't have that when they were younger and maybe sort of slid through the cracks, um, because we've got greater access to mental health care services and just, you know, uh, health insurance in general, they're now accessing a diagnosis and support. There's also a reduced stigma just in terms of mental health conditions in general. Um, And I think that's done a lot for people to go and get the support, even for things like anxiety and depression. You know, it's much more common, I think for the millennial generation, the Gen Z generation, for those folks to have a therapist to be finding some type of support. So I think it's that combination. We've got better diagnostic tools. We realize a little bit more about ADHD presentation in girls versus boys. And people are more likely to try and find support. Amazing. If somebody was watching TikTok videos
1: or reels, are they? I don't know if they're reels on TikTok or if they're called videos. I'm not on TikTok very much. But if someone's looking at some social media platform and they're thinking to themselves, oh, my God, this this feels like me. Where do they need to go to actually get a diagnosis? Is it A psychiatrist? Is it a behavior analyst? Who is the right person for them to be going to in order to take action beyond just this? Oh my God, I think this is me.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really great question. I also want to add that because of the way that social media algorithms work, when we find a really engaging video that resonates with us, right? We see a video about ADHD and we're like, ooh, I think I do that. Because you've watched it and you've liked it, you're going to see similar content. And so some of that really might start to fuel this increase in awareness about it. And part of that, I think, is beautiful because it allows people to really question and find support. And the other part of it is, you know, certain traits that come with ADHD, that come with ASD, those are human traits. So there's always going to be a relational point where we can say, oh, that feels like something close to home. That being said, if you're starting to really feel like, I think there's something here, I'm interested in finding out more. I think that the best thing to do if you have insurance is to go through that process with your insurance. That could be your primary care and saying, hey, I have a concern about this. You know, what's the next step? Or if you know that you have some type of mental or behavioral health coverage going directly to that component of your insurance provider, a lot of insurances will have that listed somewhere on their website, just what type of support services they offer. And so you can reach out directly there, but really it would be a psychiatrist or a psychologist most of the time, if you're an adult, if you were thinking, I think my child might have ADHD, you would check in with your pediatrician and go from there. And I think that's really the best place to start if you're someone who's already seeing a therapist so an lmft an lcsw so social workers and licensed marriage and family therapists i would just have that conversation with them and say you know i know maybe we've been talking about the set of things that have come for support i'm starting now to wonder if maybe there's a diagnosis behind it and so having that conversation and then your therapist can probably point you in a good direction. They might have suspected it as well, you know, but your therapist may not go out of their way to diagnose you because they're there to support you. That's really helpful. One of
1: my final questions for you is circling back to the ways in which neurotypical individuals can start to shift into creating an environment of greater acceptance and celebration. And I'm wondering if you have some tangible action steps to give us so that we can start to do that oh yeah
0: i feel like one of the best ways is by empowering yourself with information so listen to folks who are using the hashtag actually autistic tag on social media or maybe just do a little google on you know organizations that are by and for neurodivergent people. Um, so listen to those, see if something resonates with you. If you know someone in your life who has any of those conditions, I would ask them about it. If it's a relationship that you're close to, and you know they're open to it. But aside from you know giving yourself information, I think that the greatest thing that people can do to build a more inclusive world is to default to the idea that people have good intentions when we're talking about someone who answers honestly and it comes out as rude is it really rude or have you just been following a certain societal expectation of how people are supposed to be inauthentic with their words it could also be you know simple things like realizing that someone's body moving or looking differently from what you experience as normal is not bad there's a very common thing that folks who are neurodivergent do which is you know avoid eye contact a lot of times or fidget or what's called stim um, those are like repetitive behaviors that people will do that typically is self-soothing. It's something I love to bring into breath work after I did my training with you, but a repetitive movement that really stimulates that parasympathetic response. You might see it and think, oh, that's unusual. I've never seen that before. in a young child that could look like them flapping their hands, which seems very unusual to people who haven't seen it before. But if you've ever been in a meeting with people and you've had a person next to you who's tapping their leg on repeat or like clicking their pen over and over again, that's a repetitive behavior that they're probably doing to self-soothe, neurotypical or neurodivergent. So I think allowing space to see those movements, those behaviors as perfectly reasonable and in fact, ordinary would help a lot of people.
1: I think that's really helpful for me to hear just in terms of my own observations when I'm meeting new people or in group environments and can definitely pave the way for greater acceptance through understanding where it might come from. And I'm curious how we can move that into celebration.
0: What does that entail? (laughs) celebration for me i mean i think that there are so many amazing things i'm not going to say superpowers but like really cool things that people who are neurodivergent can do or love and want to nerd out about that a lot of people don't get to experience and so if you come across someone it really anyone but and you can find out what they're passionate about What is their thing that drives them? What are they wanting to talk nerdy about? Dive into it with like an open heart and like childlike curiosity, because one, you're probably going to learn or experience something rad. And two, it allows the person to celebrate and share what they love and what brings them joy. I'll give you an example. When I was at work, there was uh, another teacher who walked into our space and he was eating an apple that had like a really unusual pink flesh inside. So when he bit it, in, the inside was pink. And we're all like, What is that? What are you eating? And he started talking about how this was a specific type of apple that's only in season for two weeks and that he researched the farm that it comes from in Oregon. And then he kind of got embarrassed. He was like, oh, I'm talking way too much about this apple. And we were all like, no, we love it. Tell us more. Tell us all about it. And so he kind of geeked out on it for a bit, which was amazing. And because I work with folks who are always wanting to celebrate people's special interests, we went out and bought like four or five different kinds of apples, including the one that this person had mentioned. Looked up a spreadsheet ranking apples and what are the highest rated apples (laughs) and did a taste test just because we wanted to celebrate that this guy was geeking out over his special apple and really wanted to share it. And you don't always have to go and do that to that extent, but I learned that there are certain types of apples that I love and others that I really think taste like trash. And we all got to have this moment where we were enjoying something that someone else is so passionate about, even though it's something kind of small. And that to me is beautiful. It's beautiful to me too. You're
1: making me wanna go try some apples. Like the passion is having, having these ripple effects all the way over here to Bali. Oh, that's amazing, Alex. Thank you for sharing. So if somebody wanted to learn more about you or from you, what is the best place for them to find you?
0: Yeah, you can find me on Instagram at mindful.behavior. That would be the best way to reach out. If you send me a DM, I'll definitely check it and respond. And I love to nerd out on all things neurodiversity and mindfulness. And if you have questions, I would love to chat with you.
1: Amazing, and if someone was in the Los Angeles area and wanted to work with you, or I guess even if they're not in the Los Angeles area, do you work with people one-on-one via Zoom? Is that something that you're offering right now as well? I do,
0: I do take on private clients in person or on Zoom, so absolutely reach out and if we are the right fit for each other I would love to work with you
1: amazing I'm curious if you have any final words of wisdom or encouragement for
0: listeners before we close out it has been such a joy to chat with you and nerd out on neurodiversity I think if I was going to leave people with anything it would just be to question the status quo and see what comes from that thank you so much for your time today Alex I so appreciate it
1: Thank you. If you loved this episode, help us get it into the ears and brains of more listeners like you by sharing it on social media. When you share on Instagram, make sure you tag me at Alex underscore Nashton. Instagram is also the best place to send me your questions about the episode material and make requests for future topics and guests. New episodes of Talk Nerdy to Me drop every single Wednesday. When you hit subscribe, you'll be notified of new releases so you never have to miss one. Last but not least, this podcast baby would not be possible without Adam Russell. Adam, I am so grateful to have had your support in creating this podcast. Thank you for always being willing to talk nerdy to me.